Luke 24 and Acts chapter 3. This is the week after Easter, and it should be the most thrilling, if not one of the most thrilling weeks of the year. Perhaps this year, because of the circumstances, we might be excused or feel that we could be excused for not feeling this as we find ourselves in a dark and difficult time. But as I said earlier, we should acknowledge God's grace, that the number of deaths is a fraction of what was predicted. There is death and sorrow. We are to mourn with those who mourn. But in a normal, whatever that means, or a regular year, the week after Easter is generally not celebrated by many. Perhaps after the 40 days of Lent, a season of reflection and preparation before Easter. By the way, it is said that it's 40 days in this, the Christians imitate Jesus' time in the desert for 40 days. It was said to be marked by prayer and fasting, both from food and festivities. Several years ago, in reading a book about American nurses who were in the Philippines at the beginning of World War II, and specifically on the peninsula of Bataan, um, I read about a nurse who fell in love with a serviceman and wanted to get married. But the time they wanted to get married was Lent. And traditionally, Catholics are not allowed to marry during the time of Lent. In the present day, Catholics are allowed to marry during Lent, but they are told to keep the festivities down, tone them down, to keep in, in line with the somber mood of the period. They may not marry on Good Friday or Black Saturday or Holy Saturday. For non-Catholics, usually Lent conjures up a, a sense of, I have to give something up for Lent. So that's sort of a hard time. And then there is, as we've seen, mistakenly the joy of Palm Sunday, followed by the darkness of Holy Week, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Black Saturday, and then we come to the joy and rejoicing of Easter. It seems that we've been on an emotional roller coaster for a couple months. We want to get off the ride. We want to get back on solid ground. The result being that there may, in fact, be a huge letdown. Such a huge letdown to the point where we may wonder, did that really happen? All the things that we have been commemorating, did it really happen? One pastor has noted the, every, the Sunday after Easter Sunday, there is a huge drop in attendance. The pastor writes, as I thought about this, it occurred to me that the reason people don't come back on the Sunday after Easter is that they don't really believe that anything unusual has taken place. Something nice, maybe, something cheerful and uplifting, but not an honest-to-God resurrection from the dead. But as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, who were struggling with the whole issue of resurrection, um, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's interesting that the Corinthians, in fact, did believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but that nobody else would be, in part because they saw his resurrection as a resuscitation. He'd been dead two or three days, and so maybe he was just sort of like in a deep coma or whatever, and then he was raised. Um, but the gospel teaches that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is something we celebrated last Sunday. We are now in the period between Easter and Pentecost, known as Eastertide, the 50 great days. By the way, uh, Jesse with the children today um, through Zoom, and their Sunday school lesson was on the ascension of Christ. So we are living between the period, in the period between Easter and the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And then Pentecost, 10 days after that. As I said earlier, this is the first Sunday after Easter, and it should be the most thrilling week of the year. Why isn't it? I want us to consider two events to guide us in this Easter tide, the beginning of this Easter tide season. The first is found in Luke 24. It is, as perhaps you No, one of my favorite passages in the gospel. Let's begin reading in verse number 13, Luke 24, 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. It's about 10 and a half to 12 kilometers. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. 
When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and with them, and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told them what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. As I pointed out before, notice the conversation, the nature of their conversation. It was definitely a theological discussion. Um, They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. It's pretty clear that this is a dialogue. It's not just one person talking to the other person. They're both interacting. They're talking with each other. And they're discussing everything that had happened. And what we read in verses 18 to 24 doesn't simply mean the events, but the implications. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. It also involved great thought. In the King James, we read, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. It wasn't a casual conversation. This is a really deep, heart-to-heart conversation, a dialogue. They're trying to make sense of the events because the story hadn't turned out the way they thought it would. And who are the two people who are in this dialogue? In verse 13, we read two of them. Um, What comes to mind? For some people, they think, well, it might be two of the 12, at this point, 11, because Judas has committed suicide. But that can't be because we read in verse number 33, they went back to Jerusalem and there they met with the 11. Um, One writer put it this way, they weren't famous, they weren't members of the 12, they weren't leaders, they were just common garden variety disciples like you and me. Many people refer to this as the two men on the road to Emmaus. We know one of them was a man. His name is Cleopas. Um, I would suggest to you, as I have in the past, that the person with him is, in fact, his wife, Mary. We read in John 19 that Mary is the wife of Cleopas. She is one of the women present at the crucifixion. You see, the people who are having this in-depth conversation are not um, just talkers. They are eyewitnesses. They, in fact, were followers of Jesus. This discussion is not some idle, abstract conversation about, hmm, I wonder what that was all about. It is serious business to them. It involves not only their hopes, but their faith. Just a side note, I fear that many theological conversations are in fact a waste of time because when everything is said and done, more is said than done. That is to say, the implications of the conversation don't seem to be a big matter, a big issue. Then why are we having this conversation? There's no thought as to how will this change my life? 
Will my actions be different as a result of this conversation? Well, for these two people, for Cleopas and his wife Mary, this is everything. This is life and death, their hopes, their faith, their understanding of the story. And at a certain point, Jesus joins them. They don't know it's him. And he joins them with a question. Again, a side note, if you read through the Gospels, the next time that you do, just make a note of every time Jesus asks a question. He's not there simply to tell people stuff, but he wants to draw them out. So he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? What a question. It must have been painful for them to hear this. And now to answer, we had hoped. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. The question I have is, why did Jesus join this particular conversation? Because that first Easter Sunday, there must have been many conversations among the followers of Jesus about what had happened. And yet, as best we can tell, this is the one conversation that he chose to join. And join it he did, beginning with Moses and going through the whole Old Testament. He explained to them why the Messiah, why the Christ, had to suffer and then enter into his glory. In the other appearances on that first Easter, there's no such explanation. But in this case, Jesus explains to them from Scripture. More on that in a bit. What did Jesus say to them? What we are told directly by Luke is that he began in the Old Testament at the beginning and worked his way through. That is to say the story's there, the information is there, Cleopas and Mary and all the others simply had not understood it correctly. Their version of the story was wrong, and Jesus corrects it. He told them how the story was to be. So they're walking along, this 10 and a half to 12 kilometers, and they get to Emmaus. Apparently this is where they live. And Jesus makes as though he's going to keep going. He has somewhere else to go. But they urge him to stay. It's, it's almost sunset. You need to come and stay with us. So he went in to stay with them. Apparently at a certain time, it is, at a certain point, it's time for the evening meal. And several amazing things happen. The first is that Jesus, who, they still don't know it's Jesus, who is the guest, takes on the role of the host. It's rather presumptuous. But he does take that role. And he does four things. He takes the bread that has been offered. He gives thanks. He prays. He breaks it. And then he began to give it to them. Does this sound familiar? This is what we hear of Jesus doing at the Last Supper. But what I want to have you consider on this Sunday, this Sunday after Easter, is what we read in verses 31 and 32. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. 
They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Twice in these verses, we see, we read the words opened. Jesus opened their eyes and they recognized him. Jesus opened the scriptures to them. We hear this word one more time in this chapter. If you continue to follow along, beginning in verse number 36. They'd gone back and told the the 11 that they had seen Jesus. Verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. By the way, the children studied this today in Sunday school with Jesse. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So here we are one Sunday after Easter. And how do we imagine that we understand the resurrection? That we came to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. In the midst of this pandemic, things seemingly out of sort, the world turned upside down. How is it that we continue to believe? It can only be, and it must be, Because Jesus has opened our eyes, he has opened the scriptures, he has opened our understandings. If we don't understand this, we may in fact deceive ourselves into imagining and thinking that we can do this on our own. To think that we have done this on our own. And if that happens at a certain point, I think several things could happen. One is that we just find ourselves exhausted, trying, I'm, I'm just keep trying to believe on my own, to understand on my own. Or in fact, we may walk away from the faith. For those of us who have been Christians for a long time, for those of us raised in Christian homes, we may have forgotten that Jesus opened our eyes, he opened the scriptures to us, and he opened our minds, our understanding, so that we could understand the scripture. This is not something we've done on our own. It's not because we're particularly brilliant or that we're good people better than other people. That's why we get this. What Jesus did on that first Easter Sunday, he has done in our lives. And this Sunday, this first Sunday after Easter, we can't forget that. There shouldn't be this letdown, and then we hope at some point we can sort of pick it up again and and, and come to see the truth of it all. It is Jesus who has opened our eyes. For many of us, that was decades ago. 
but we cannot forget that he opened our eyes, that he opened the scriptures to us, that we might understand it, and then he opened our understanding. That's the first event. The second event, event, not spend as much time on, is found in Acts chapter 3. It's after the day of Pentecost. Begin in verse number 1 of Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. He wants alms that perhaps out of tenderness of conscience people might give to him. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Peter tells the people that they are to repent. And why why should they repent? Well, he gives them three reasons. First of all, that your sins may be wiped out. Just a side note, in the ancient world, Ink was, was not made with acid in it. That is to say, it didn't bite into the paper or papyrus that was being used. It simply lay on top of it. So to erase, you simply got a wet sponge and you just wiped it out. And this here is the language of forgiveness, that in fact their sins which are written in ink 
but not ink with acid, can simply be wiped away. There is forgiveness. That the time of refreshing may come from the Lord. Words like refreshing and refreshment uh, seem somewhat quaint, uh, maybe even retro. Something you hear or you see in that, you know, that, that animated video that they show before a movie in the theater. Let's all go out to the lobby. And these treats are marching down the aisle and popcorn is holding a placard that says refreshments. And then when you go out to the lobby, it says delicious refreshments. The word that Peter uses here indicates to be cooled by breath or by water. A time of refreshing. The third reason why they should repent is that God may send his Christ, the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time for God to restore everything. The time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his prophets. In these three things, we hear Christ-centered promises of forgiveness, of refreshment, and of restoration. I'd like to focus on the second one, because I don't know about you, but I could use some refreshing, some refreshment right about now. It may be quaint, it may be retro, I don't care. In this difficult time, time of being isolated from one another, being quarantined in our homes. Be nice to have some refreshment. God has been gracious during this pandemic, but I think it has weighed on each one of us. Some, at least from what I'm hearing, are coming to recognize their need of something or someone greater than themselves. It is as though they need Jesus to walk beside them, to open the scriptures, to open their eyes, to open their understanding. An amazing story is told of Malcolm Muggeridge, an English journalist and satirist, who was an agnostic for much of his life, most of his life. But later in life, he became a Christian. And a part of his conversion story is rooted in a BBC television series that he narrated, that he produced for BBC. And in the last scene, the final scene of this series that he had made, he and a friend decided to retrace the steps of Cleopas and Mary to Emmaus. And this is what he writes. As my friend and I walked along like Cleopas and his friend, we recalled as they did the events of the crucifixion and its aftermath in the light of our utterly different and yet similar world. Nor was it a fancy that we too were joined by a third presence. And I tell you that whatever the walk and whoever the wayfarers, there is always this third presence ready to emerge from the shadows and to fall in step along the dusty, stony way. And it is at this time that Malcolm Muggeridge became a follower of Jesus. For those of us who have been followers of Jesus for much of our lives, we may have lost sight of this. 
we may have lost sight of the fact that we need Jesus to walk beside us, to open the scriptures to us, to open our eyes and to open our minds and our understanding. You see, Easter is not over. Easter will never be over. We have the three openings, the opening of scripture, the opening of their eyes, the opening of the understanding. These are three great blessings of the resurrected Lord. But then there is also forgiveness, refreshment, and restoration. And the refreshment that God gives us in this life is only the beginning of God's eternal and never-ending time when we will eat and drink in the kingdom of God. We should always look to the Lord Jesus, and we should look for those times when, in fact, he does graciously in unexpected signs of his mercy, sudden surprises of his grace, he brings refreshing. And we should remember something else, that he intends to use us as a sign of refreshing and refreshment for others. See, it's not all about us. We are followers of Jesus, but we are to reflect what he has done for us to others. And in a time of great fear, and frankly, I think people are getting tired of being isolated and quarantined. We are, in fact, to be those who bring refreshing because we have been refreshed by the risen Lord. One pastor wrote years ago, because when the Bible is opened and we see the Lord Jesus Christ as he is interpreted to us by the divine operation of the Holy Spirit, we will never be the same again. But again, I, I think because it is so familiar to many of us, we have forgotten that we didn't, we weren't able to understand this on our own. It is the Lord Jesus who opened our understanding. It is the Lord Jesus who opened our minds. He opened our eyes and he opened the scriptures to us. And we hear the call of the gospel to repent that our sins might be wiped away, that a time of refreshing will come, and that one day the Lord Jesus will return and all things will be restored. Let's pray together. Father, in normal times, I think there would be a letdown after Easter. All the celebration, family get together. New clothes. And after the 40 days of Lent and Holy Week and Easter, just pretty much wiped out. Somewhere along the way, we have forgotten that any understanding we have of this is because Jesus has opened our eyes and our minds and has opened the scriptures to us. Somehow we've forgotten that. We've taken the burden upon ourselves that we will study scripture, we will understand it, or we imagine we understand it because of our own brilliance. 
and we become oppressed. We are weighed down. We are exhausted trying to maintain our faith and our hope. We've forgotten where it came from in the first place. May we remember today. And with that remembering, may we be refreshed because of the resurrected Christ. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, for sending your son, for raising him from the dead, for the forgiveness and the refreshing and one day restoration we can have through him. May we not take upon ourselves that which is not ours to bear. May we look to you in faith. May we raise empty hands of faith to receive from you what you have for us. We are so grateful. Forgive us for our ingratitude or for thinking we've done this all by ourselves. We are scattered today. We're not all together, but you are with us wherever we are. I ask that your grace and mercy, your spirit would be with each one of us today and the coming week. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who has made this all possible. And even now he intercedes. That's why we're able to pray to you to come into your presence. So we pray this through Jesus and in his name.